Hi, everybody. This is James Miscavish. I am the advisor here at the Lead Innovation Studio for the Leadcast podcast. And I just wanted to let you know that there are several references throughout this week's episode to Black History Month in February, but you're most certainly not listening to it in February, at least of 2022. Uh, we realized part of the way through the production process that I had set our deadline uh, too late in the month to get it out in February. So uh, I apologize, and I'll let the students take it from here. Hello, welcome back to the Leadscast. I'm Devlin. It's currently Black History Month, so we're going to dedicate this episode to some prominent black history figures. We have our first segment on the creation, purpose, and struggles of our very own BSU, or Black Student Union. Here's Kamani with an interview with the lead BSU's creator. Jevene Rie, J-E, V as in Victor, O-N-E-E, last name R-H-E-A. How did BSU begin? I saw a lot of kids walk in and see me sitting at the front desk and they did a lot of head turning. And when I spoke with a few of the students here, they asked me if I would sponsor a BSU. They said that they had tried prior to start a BSU and they were not supported in that and was told that they had to go to the home high schools to start the BSU. So, I mean, they were told that that was something they couldn't do here at LEAD. I'm not sure about board members, not, not too sure about parents, but I know we did get some backlash when we had our BSU um, Spirit Week and Black History Month program last year from students. That I guess they didn't understand the Black Panther Day. So it was, we, we had to be specific in detail that it wasn't the Black Panther movement. And that brought a little bit of a concern to some students that they weren't understanding why we were doing a Black Panther Day and they couldn't do another day that fit, you know, their criteria or what have you. So we had to change our Black Panther Day, Black Panther the movie. It was tough because we're in 2021 and pretty much told that it's political and that Black Panther, the movement, couldn't be involved, that we had to specify that it was Black Panther the movie. So we posted like, I mean, one of our students posted because we have an Instagram page and she posted on the page that she, um, she posted on the page the, the spirit days like they have now. And for that day, you know, we had to take the post down because it had Black Panther and it wasn't specific to the movie. So before we could do spirit week or Black history month, Everything had to be approved for us to to do it. We had Black History Month last year in March. I mean, in the hopes to bring awareness to the district with as far as HBCUs, because I can say when I first started here, I was surprised that a lot of people didn't even know that there were HBCUs and that they existed. So I had to kind of educate people to let them know that there are historically black colleges and universities that's what hbcu is no one knew that so that was kind of a that was a bit something for me to 
you know, wrap my head around because, you know, where I come from or my upbringing, like, you know, I wasn't, I'm, I'm shocked. I'll say that. <laughs> I'll say, I'll say that. I was not, I did not know that, <laughs> that my students or staff or, you know, people didn't know what HBCUs were. Or um, to be comfortable in a place to see people like you and understand you from a different dynamic, a different aspect, a different approach. Our speakers, and he pointed out why I go to an HBCU because it's a family thing like it's we take care of each other no matter what the situation is no matter if you're wrong or you're right when we give you direction and guidance and pointers and things we mean it out of love you know and support of we know when you go out these doors that's not going to always be there so that's the environment and the hopes that I hope to give and bring to BSU because I feel like they need it. I mean, we have Cypher, she is our treasurer. <laughs> we do not discriminate. <laughs> so how like, you know, for, but BSU originally was created on a college campus to have some type of support system for black kids on campus. So now it's in high schools, it's in junior high schools, it's in some elementary, but we want allies. We would like people to come in to see a different view of how we are in this world, should I say, because it's it's totally different. Like, you know, I have conversations with students here who are very passionate, and it's not because they're aggressive or they're confrontational. It's just in their environment, in their culture, they are, we're loud. We're not quiet. I don't care what background it is hispanic asian <laughs> filipino samoan black we are vocal and that's just a part of our culture and we have to downplay our passion or tone it down because other people don't know how to receive it so i've had conversations with my students here like hey at home you know your mom does not talk like duh, 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 duh. we know this so that's how you're coming off because that's what we're used to. So you just need to tone it down. And it's not me telling you not to be who you are, but you got to understand they're not used to that. So we have to sometimes take a step back and say, you know what, maybe I can't adjust this or fix this. And no, we shouldn't have to adjust or change, but we're, that's the only way you can understand. You know, that's the only way you can understand because I, was, I grew up in California um, by way of New Orleans. So this whole scene here in the Midwest, I'm not used to it. <laughs> I'm used to diverse. <laughs> so the Hispanic culture, the Samoan culture, like I grew up with all of this. So to not see it celebrated and, you know, it's like, whoa, what do I have to do to get this person involved? Cause you know, my, my, actually my, my lineage, you know, I have activists in my family. A couple of the slides on that, um, Black History Month is my uncle, my auntie my nephew like it's I came from this like I was put here to make change in whichever way I can we're usually the only black kid in the class or maybe it's another one you know we don't see that many of us and then when we do see that many of us it, it's a problem like if we become friends with each other oh my gosh it's too many of you guys hanging out together but we found somebody that looked like us so we want to be able to relate instead of just being 
secluded off to the side. We already come in here feeling like that. You know, I'm not afraid to say as a kid what we were taught. I think it was a great interview. You're welcome. Mm -hmm. You guys should interview the other high school to see their perspective on. Because there's, there's BSUs at the other high schools. And like, you know, at, at Park Hill and South, I believe, they have decor for Black History Month. And we, from what my students have told me, we can't put up posters and do anything like that to support. You know, like, it's, it's to me, it's Black History Month, right? How do you know that? Right, it's, it's because we're not moving around. So, and then, you know, we presented a Black History slide that has, it has like 30 slides on it of different Black History events and people that are not the normal people and um i think they're just gonna show that one's my uncle that's my mom in the bottom on the picture with him but that's a mural in louise in los angeles of him he started the first black print company and was a um, columnist at first and was really adamant and go look him up he actually met our slave owners and he has a whole video on there if you click the link in the slides there's a link down there it takes you to his interview he actually you know met the guy or the family who owned us like his mom and his dad and his brothers and sisters which will be my grandfather my mom's dad's parents so he met them and they tried to offer him you know things like that and he says it in his interview how he felt about it or whatever, so yeah. And then there's another one of my Aunt Hazel who's on there and she had a convention center named after her in, in New Orleans in 2009. I have a picture of her signing the cutting of the ribbon with the mayor and the governor and the picture of my sister. She started the mail service in the neighborhood where my grandparents lived, my mom growing up. They didn't have mail coming through there because of black. So she started it. She started that, she started the phones, all of that. You can look her, and it, it's, all her information is on there too, and you can look it up. And, um, but yeah, that's, that's what I come from. <laughs> so it's like, I don't, I don't know how else to be, you know? <laughs> so, but yeah, it's good, it's good stuff. And, um, let me see, I know a lot of people, I just, I'm not that person that says, hey, I'm this, 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 I don't do that, because like, you know, I really could, I don't know, like the NAACP thing, like that none of that is here, you know, it kind of, it, it doesn't bother me, but I just want to know why, like why do my, why do the black kids not have access to this black resources? Cause you should know what that is, and you should know what the Urban League is too. Mm -hmm. It's okay. You'll learn. You'll know. I'll teach you. <laughs> you know I will. Thank you, Kamani. It's always interesting and very important to learn from and understand others. Moments like this shed light on struggles, but more importantly, growth and getting over those struggles. On the topic of learning from others, I'll be learning from Tia with her African American book talk. In light of Black History Month, 
it is worthwhile to take time to appreciate and amplify the voices of Black authors. Authors like Maya Angelou and James Baldwin are amazing and gave a voice to the Black community. However, there is still a disproportionately high amount of Caucasian writers and publishers, all the way down to children's literature. Minority groups are underrepresented. It amplifies the notion that to be white is to be better than, and this is not the case. It is important to establish and value a world where children enjoy reading. However, according to Melanie Koss, a professor in the Northern Illinois University Department of Literacy and Education, children are less likely to read or value the importance of reading when they can't see or connect to characters who look like them. People want to read about themselves, but if you never see yourself in a book, what does that tell you about how you are valued? You are not, Koss says. But the underrepresentation does not stop at children's literature or even literature in general, but is carried over into the publishing world. According to NPR, Leanne Lowe's books, an independent publisher of multicultural children and young adults literature, launched the first major study of staff diversity in publishing. Over 40 publisher and review journals participated. These findings revealed that across the board, nearly 80% of those surveyed who worked in publishing self-identified identified as white, even though minorities make up 40% of the United States population. Because of this, it is important to promote authors and books that help rewrite the narrative and establish diversity in literature. So today, we will look at The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin, Children and Blood and Bone by Tomi Adaimi, and The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin is a novel published in 1963 on how to call out and overcome black tyranny. It is a collection of two essays having the hard conversations in a time period where racial injustice was not really talked about. Baldwin writes to his defeated nephew because his nephew has been continuously degraded by society and it stuck with him. He felt lesser than. Baldwin speaks on recognizing and analyzing the past so that we can understand the present. He also talks about his personal family struggle to call out white people for not acknowledging the anti-Semitic actions of the past. He was brutally honest with his nephew about the reality of growing up being a black man in this time period and told him that because he is a black man, he will have to deal with this for the rest of his life. You'll like this book if you like nonfiction or classics. Personally, I give the book about an 8.5 out of 10. The next book we have on the list is Children of Blood and Bone by Tomi Adaimi. Here's a quick synopsis from the bibliophile. In Children of Blood and Bone, Zalai is a diviner, a magi child. The magi are clans of people who once had magic powers that have since disappeared from the kingdom of Orisha. In one brutal night many years ago, the Magi were all eradicated from Orisha by King Saran, who fears their powers. An encounter with Amari, princess of Orisha, leads to one of the opportunities to reawaken magic in these lands. Zulai and Amari must embark on treacherous journey to restore those powers. I was recommended this book in the streets of Seattle while on vacation, and it definitely lives up to the hype. If you like fantasy and action and adventure, this book is for you. I give this book around a 7 out of 10. The next and final book that we are going to look at is The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. Here's a quick synopsis from Goodreads. 16-year-old Star Carter moves between two worlds, 
the poor neighborhood where she lives, and the fancy suburban prep school she attends. The uneasy balance between these worlds is shattered when Star witnesses the fatal shooting of her childhood best friend, Khalil, at the hands of a police officer. Khalil was unarmed. Soon afterward, his death is a national headline. Some are calling him a thug, maybe even a drug dealer and a gangbanger. Protesters are taking to the streets in Khalil's name. Some cops and local drug lords try to intimidate Star and her family. What everyone wants to know is what really went down that night, and the only person alive who can answer the question is Star. But what Star does or does not say could upend her community. It could also endanger her life. While the fire next time did a really good job of calling out racial oppression in the past, sometimes those who are not people of color forget that there's still racial oppression in the status quo, and the hate you give does a really good job of bringing a light to this. While the hate you give is fiction, it is important to note that the topics it touches on are happening in the real world. I honestly think that everyone should read this book, and I give it a 9 out of 10. And that concludes our segment on Black History Month books. I hope you enjoyed following along with me. Thank you, Tia. Next up, we have a missing persons case that I personally found interesting. Let Danny take the spotlight, or spot microphone, as we look into the Millbrook case. On the morning of March 18, 1990, in Augusta, Georgia, Danette and Jeanette Millbrooks went to church with their family. Around lunchtime, they walked to their local church's chicken and picked up food for lunch, taking it home. When the twins arrived back home, Jeanette told her mother, Mary Sturgis, that a white van had been following them. When Maria looked outside their window, she didn't see it. They left again around 3 p.m., heading to their godfather's house for bus fare. After leaving their godfather's house, they made at least two more stops, one to see a young cousin and one to see their older sister. They ended up at a gas station's convenience store where they bought chips and a drink, and after that, their trail went cold. When the twins didn't return home after hours of when they were expected back, Mary and the twins' little sister, Shauna, went looking for them on foot. When they never found the girls, they went back home and called the police to report them missing. Instead of having a case opened, Mary was told to wait 24 hours before reporting. 24 hours later, and there was still no sign of the twins. Mary called again to report her two daughters missing. The police opened a case but told Mary that the twins had probably ran away. The twins' father, John Milbrook, was married to Mary Sturgis and was described as cruel and violent by Mary. Mary had separated because of fear of John hurting her daughters. When told about the disappearance of the two girls, John didn't want to look for them and asked his older daughter if the police came looking for him to tell them he was dead. Their 16th birthday came and passed, still no sign of the twins. The Millbrooks confirmed that there was someone who had called the police saying that they had seen the twins leaving. It was never clarified what they were leaving, the neighborhood, the city, the state. In April 1991, an investigator said that the twins probably weren't going to come back home. The police still entertained the idea that the twins had ran away. The case was closed. Now Shanna, who was 12 when her older sisters disappeared, started on the journey to get the case reopened back in 2004. June 5, 2013, Sturgis got Richmond County Sheriff Richard Roundtree to reopen the case, quoting, For some unknown reason, they were moved from the system, but there is no report indicating why they were moved. So for the last 20 years, they have not been in the system, end quote. 
This is what Roundtree had told the Huffington Post. From 1991 to 2013, 22 years later, no one but their family has been looking for the twins. Roundtree put both the girls and their mother's DNA into the database, but the nationwide search came back empty. John Milbrook, the father who didn't want to look for the twins, refused to give a DNA test. John also told the twins' older sister, who has since passed away, not to as well, but she didn't anyway. Sturgis added, quote, They're my sisters, but they're her daughters, you know. When you birth two kids at the same time and they grow up to 15 years old, and now they're 45 years old and you haven't seen them since they were 15, that's hard. Really hard. End quote. There's still a lot unknown. While the case has still not been solved, there are a couple of questions that can be asked. One of them being, was someone behind their disappearance? Nearby where the twins lived, there was a man named Joseph Patrick Washington, who is a convicted serial killer. He lived near the pump and shop, which is where the twins were last seen, buying their drink and chips. Washington was actively attacking women in the early 1990s, the same time when the twins had gone missing. It was proven that he had killed two women, but there was a possibility of more. Washington was arrested in 1993 and passed away in 1999. He said he had a preference for African-American women with short hair. Both of the twins were African-American with short hair. But by the time he was arrested, the police had already declared the twins as runaways, so Washington was never connected to their disappearance. While it seems like Washington would be the only person to take them, there was another man who could have had a hand in the twins' disappearance. John Milbrook. On Oxygen's two-hour special, The Disappearance of the Milbrook Twins, Laura Norton, the host of The Fall Line, and Brooke Hargrover, the producer, found an inmate named Ernest Vons. When they had reached out to him, asking about his knowledge of the twins, he wrote them a letter back, saying he had information. The letter was submitted to Richmond's County Sheriff's Office, but after two years, nothing was heard from it. The investigators wanted to reach out to him again, so this time they went through his daughter, April Kettle. Vaughn said that the twins had gone to their father's house, which was known for drug dealing at the time. He said the twins were forced to smoke and drink. Then one of them was sexually assaulted. The other twin had tried to help her but was punched and fell back, hitting her head and hurting herself badly. He also mentioned a possible body dumping site, Mary Brothers Brickyard. Vons, an eyewitness, was around 12 years old at the time and remembered Lil Cheese and Oodle Boy as well as John being present at the incident. He claimed that the twin that had been sexually assaulted was sexually assaulted by Lil Cheese. But what's more, Oodle Boy drove a white van. Whether the twins ran away or were taken away, we will never know. So until then, there will always be the mystery of what happened to the Millbrook twins on March 18, 1990. Thank you, Danny. That was interesting. I feel like we can all be pretty sure of what happened there, but it's not our place to convict people. Thank you for listening to the lead cast, and just a heads up on what's coming next episode, we have a segment on the wacky world of dreams, a segment where we dust off some old conspiracy theories, and a segment on the evolution of horror. We will see you next time. <laughs>